What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to Guest Friday on Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and on Facebook, and you can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. So as I let you guys know on uh, social media this week, uh, we are doing another edition of The Mailbag, so answering some questions uh, submitted by some of our listeners. So I'm really excited to get to that today. Uh, plenty of stuff to talk about, ranging from a couple of different topics, a couple different sports. Uh, so looking forward to it uh, this week. So uh, without further ado, we're going to get into it. i uh, got a lot of Bruin stuff, understandably. Um, a lot of Celtic stuff, also understandably. got a couple of other uh, questions that we will get to as well. So uh, we'll jump right into it. You know, obviously, the elephant in the room, the Bruins uh, deciding to fire Bruce Cassidy on Monday night, hours after I finished recording the podcast. So obviously, that's how it works. <laughs> so obviously, you know, at the time, I would have liked to say a few things. But now is, you know, the some of the dust or some of the smoke is cleared. Um, I don't think all of it has cleared. I think just with this whole situation, um, but we are going to get it, get into that. There are a couple questions based on that, um, so we will get to that. But I think first, um, first question that I got this week was uh, from Tosh Campbell, who's a good friend of mine. Um, and so his question is, uh, do you think Bergeron will be back next season? And how do you think they approach building the team for next season if he's playing versus if he's not playing? So obviously a lot of, a lot of pieces to that question, uh, Tosh. Uh, it's a great question because I think, obviously, considering some of the events that have happened over the last few days, it, you know, may or may not affect Patrice's decision. Um, I've always said that I feel like it feels like he's going to come back. You know, I think just based on the the way the season ended, and I think just based on what you saw on the ice this season, it doesn't lead you to believe that he's a player that is you know, breaking down, so to speak, or, you know, slowing down, you know, statistically, he had one of his best seasons last season and, you know, ends up winning the Selkie trophy as we talked about on Monday. So I think from the perspective of the way that he's playing and the things that we have, you know, seen and heard, it leads me to believe that he will be back. It leads me to believe that he will be back. Um, and I think that, you know, of course, some of the things that have happened in the last few days may affect it. Um, I don't think that it will. You know, I think Patrice is someone who I think, if he wants to play, he'll play. You know, and I think never mind whatever else is going on in the organization or within the team, he's going to want to play. You know, if he wants to play, he will play. Um, and I think obviously if he doesn't want to play, then he won't. But I think based on some of the things that, that I've seen or heard and things like that, it, it leads me to believe that he'll be back. You know, obviously the Bruins announced that he'll have, or he had surgery um, on his elbow that he had some issues with at some bit. I think it was, I think it was some point in March where he missed a couple of games. 
um, had to have an elbow procedure, but he will have surgery on that. You know, obviously that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It doesn't mean that, you know, he'll definitely be back or he definitely is going to retire. Um, I think the recovery was somewhere around three months, so, or 10 to 12 weeks, I think, if you want to get technical. Um, so I think if he does decide to play, there is a possibility that, you know, maybe he's not ready by opening night, but, you know, obviously we'll see. Um, obviously the Bruins have a bunch of guys coming back uh, from surgeries and guys that probably are going to be out the first, you know, 15, 20 games, what have you. Um, but I think just returning back to Tosh's original question, yes, I do think that he will be back. Um, obviously, you know, with his return, does it affect the way that you build your roster? Well, you know, here's where it gets challenging. You know, I think that with this decision to fire Bruce Cassidy, you know, you're in a weird position because if Bergeron does decide to return and he says, you know, this is probably going to be my last year, you know, you approach it year to year, kind of like they did with Chara, you know, does that mean that the Bruins want to build the team to be like, okay, we have to build the team better to win a championship? You know, I mean... I'll just be honest, looking at this roster, you know, good luck with that, especially with the first couple of game, first couple of months of the season where you're going to be without a couple of key players. Um, so it's like, I think if he does return and probably for, you know, a year and the Bruins just play it year by year, you know, then I think you may see the Bruins getting a little aggressive and trying to move out a Jake DeBrusque, trying to move out a Mike Riley or move out another defenseman, then I think, you know, you're building a team to try to compete if he does return. I think ultimately that's what's going to happen. If he doesn't return, you know, I feel like this team doesn't really have enough to be able to compete. You know, obviously they're going to be competitive enough that they're going to probably be in the playoff chase for most of the season. You know, it remains to be seen where they'd finish. You know, you're probably looking at a 7th, 8th place finish in the conference, ninth place, 10th place, you know, somewhere around there. You know, unfortunately, it's probably going to be something similar to 2015 and 2016, the two years that you missed the playoffs. You know, um, I think in terms of roster construction, I don't really know if it changes anything um, because I think that Yes, looking at this team and this roster, it probably, you know, might be a better idea just to kind of take it slow this season. Let the guys come back from surgeries. Let them come back at their own pace and whatever. If you have a bad season, you have a bad season. You just kind of suck it up. But I don't think that is what ownership is going to allow them to do. I believe that ownership is not going to allow them to have a bad season. And I think ownership is going to pressure this team to make some huge moves um, and be like, you have to do something because we need to get back to the playoffs and we need to make money. So I think either way, the, the Bruins are probably going to be doing some, you know, I don't want to say aggressive, but you might see them make some potential big moves. Um, and that's not to say that they're necessarily going to become a Stanley Cup contender overnight. But it's like, it's that is kind of what worries me, that they're going to throw a lot of money at, you know, a Nazem Kadri or a Claude Giroux, and it's not really going to change anything. You know, it's not going to 
magically make this team better. So, you know, I think Bergeron's return doesn't necessarily change how they approach the offseason. It probably should, but I don't think that it will. Um, so then our next question comes to us from uh, Josh Turgeon, who is a good friend of mine uh, from Springfield College. We did radio together uh, for a couple years at Springfield. So uh, nice to hear from Josh. And Josh wanted to know my take on the Bruce Cassidy firing. So, you know, obviously it came as a surprise, a surprise to a lot of people, um, me included, <laughs> Bruins organization included, and I think Bruce Cassidy included. Um, you know, I think that over the course of the week, you know, more and more information has come out about what exactly went down. You know, I think that we got a lot more clarity yesterday as to kind of the timeline as to what happened, but, you know, I think that it didn't exactly give us more answers. So, you know, Bruins choose to go a different direction. You know, I think that Don Sweeney made it clear, I guess, that, you know, the Bruins are choosing to move on from him because, you know, the message was maybe getting lost on guys that I think, you know, the message and the voice of Cassidy was, you know, maybe too much for certain guys on the team. And, you know, Sweeney felt like it was the right thing to do to fire him. And, you know, it just is, it's a strange decision because, you know, Sweeney himself admitted in the press conference on Tuesday that, no, Bruce Cassidy did not lose the room. And so, you know, I have a hard time putting together if he didn't lose the room, you know, where is this message stuff coming from? You know, I, and, and it does, you know, I understand what he's saying in a way because I think that, I think, you know, Cassidy, someone like him, is someone who tells it like it is and someone who's blunt and is, you know, not shy to call players out for playing poorly. And I think, you know, over time, maybe that became a little too much for certain guys. And, you know, Sweeney maybe made that, made that you know, uh, I don't want to say assumption because, you know, you have to, if you're going to fire someone, it can't just be on an assumption. You know, he must have thought that there's enough reasoning there to fire him and you know maybe it's the not great relationships that he had with some of the young guys and you know some of the young players that haven't exactly fit in here but you know I will say though that you know some of the young guys that haven't fit in here haven't exactly gone and lit it up elsewhere you know when you think about players like Donato, Anders Bjork, Danton Heinen, you know, none of those guys really have lit it up outside of, outside of Boston. So, you know, I think that there's something to be said for the idea that Bruce was incredibly popular, you know, with, with the fans and the media and people like a, you know, no nonsense person that's going to tell it like it is. But I do think that, you know, certainly after a while, after years of kind of that type of thing, it can probably get a little frustrating or a little tiring as a player to, you know, constantly have to deal with that type of messaging. And, you know, maybe the message, as Sweeney said, just the way it was being delivered, it just wasn't, it wasn't getting through to guys, you know, and you saw a lot of issues this season 
you know, giving up goals late in periods, you know, being, you know, undisciplined, having those type of issues and not necessarily, you know, saying that that, you know, execution and discipline is on the coach. But I do think that you saw some slippage at times this season and you haven't really seen that in other seasons. So I think, you know, you can, you know, you can go back and forth on, you know, the reasons why Bruce Cassidy got fired. I do think that it was the wrong decision. You know, I don't think that coaching was the reason why the Bruins did not go deeper in the playoffs. You know, I think honestly, you you lost a, a playoff series where, you know, some of the same issues are, are, are rearing their ugly head, that you're not able to get timely goal scoring. You're not able to get goal scoring from multiple places in the lineup. And I think, you know, to be brutally honest, that speaks more to the construction of the roster than it does the coaching. And obviously, Cassidy was not a perfect coach. You know, certainly a lot of people had, you know, issues here and there with some lineup decisions and certain guys that Cassidy kind of was stubborn on continuing to play. You know, there are some people, including myself, that felt for a long time the Bruins were stubborn to break up the perfection line of Bergeron, Marchand, and Pasternak. That's not exactly like a current issue, but it was an issue in the past. Um, But I just think... It just, it just is, it just doesn't really seem exactly fair to Bruce Cassidy that, you know, he has to be the scapegoat for this. And I think that that is kind of the big problem that I have that, you know, if you were going to leave, if you were going to say, you know, and maybe not directly, but it's like, if we're going to say that Bruce Cassidy is the reason why the Bruins didn't do, you know, better this season, you know, if the reason is, he didn't do a good enough job with the pieces that he had, well, you know, then it should be, you know, at the fault of not, like, if we're going to think that way, it should be not only the coach's fault, but it should be whoever built the roster, and Sweeney and Neely are the people that built the roster, and so I felt like if you were going to pin blame on the coach for not doing enough, well, then you need to blame the people that put these pieces together, and it just kind of, you know, it just doesn't make sense. And there's a lot more of this, you know, based on the reports yesterday after Cassidy, you know, spoke to the media. There's a lot about this that doesn't really make sense. You know, the Bruins, you know, choose to, to fire a coach two weeks after, you know, saying that, that he was safe and his job was, you know, status quo, status quo, as the report said. And so, you know, what changed in the two, three weeks? Why all of a sudden are they firing him after saying that he was safe? You know, and I just feel like this organization has a notorious way of doing things like this. And I guess I just, a lot of us are confused as to where the, you know, the gap in time and and where that changed. And, you know, if you saw my Twitter thread yesterday, You know, I seem to think that that ownership has a lot to do with this, that, you know, as I said, ownership is upset because they didn't get enough home playoff games to make enough money. And so, you know, they probably went to Sweeney Neely and said, 
why aren't you firing this guy? You know, we didn't get far enough to make enough money. Now, I'm not saying that they said exactly that, but, you know, I wouldn't put it past this ownership to be upset about, you know, not making the money, not making enough money and be more upset about that than the actual product on the ice. Um, you know, we know that they're not exactly, you know, they're, they're essentially absentee owners, essentially. So it doesn't surprise me and it wouldn't surprise me if they are, you know, so out of touch that it took them two weeks to be like, oh, you know, why aren't, why aren't, why isn't ownership firing the coach? Because clearly there's something wrong with the team and naturally the coach is the easiest thing to, to blame. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult situation that the Bruins have put themselves into. And, you know, sure enough, Cassidy was going to be in the last year of his deal and, you know, the Bruins could have done it this way that, you know, they let him coach through next year and then fire him if they don't make the playoffs. Obviously, that wouldn't be fair because you're having a bunch of key guys that are going to miss the first couple weeks of the season. And so it wouldn't exactly be a fair season to judge him on, but it's like that would make a lot more sense than what you've done this week and just fire him and kind of give these kind of loose reasonings for why you fired him. You know, it just, it just seems interesting to me that, you know, Sweeney has said some things about getting younger guys involved. Well, you know, why would you go out and sign, you know, guys over 30 years old? And I'm not trying to say that, you know, Eric Hall had a bad season or, you know, Nosek obviously didn't have a good enough season, but I think like, if you really wanted to give young guys a shot, well, why are you signing guys who are, who are old, you know, and not like, you know, old 36 years old, but like, why are you signing guys that are, you know, 30 plus or 30 or like in the prime of their career? When do you really want to give spots to those young guys? So that's the part of it. Those, it's just those reasonings don't really make sense to me. And that's what leads me to believe that perhaps it wasn't Don Sweeney's decision to fire Cassidy, you know, maybe it was ownership telling him that you need to fire him or, you know, you're going to lose your job. You know, we still have not seen a contract extension for Sweeney yet. So obviously they keep saying that it's going to get done, but he still ha doesn't have a contract. So that is kind of going to be something interesting to monitor. But at the end of the day, I just think it's a, it's a poor decision. It, reflects poorly on the franchise because, you know, you have two guys who are keeping their jobs and the faults of this team over the last couple of years is, is squarely on their shoulders. It's not really on Bruce Cassidy's shoulders. And that just, to me, is the, the worst part about this, that we are blaming the wrong person. Um, and it just... And the, the part that I think really is hard for me is, you know, Bruce really cared and really cared about this team and is a guy that just, he doesn't deserve this. You know, I think that obviously his messaging, maybe being blunt, maybe that rubbed off negatively on guys throughout the years. But I just thought that he was, you know, such a perfect hire when he got hired, you know, after the Bruins fired Claude and it just... It just seems, you know, 
I don't know, part of, part of this seems ironic that, you know, Cassidy was brought in assuming that he was going to be, you know, better with the younger players, and maybe he was, but it just seems ironic that it seemed like they brought him in in 2017 to be a better coach for the young players because he'd been in Providence for so many years, and then ironically he gets fired because perhaps he didn't work well enough with the younger guys on the team, but again, you know, you can kind of just argue about that all day long, but it just it doesn't make sense to me why they would fire him, why they would do it in the manner that they, that they did, but I guess at the end of the day, it's this franchise, and they that's kind of how they do things. You know, they are not really open and honest about things, and, you know, that's why I think there's something else going on here um, that, you know, is not being let on, that I think there's there the ownership is definitely involved in this in some way. So, again, I know that was a long answer, but obviously... You know, a lot of a lot of thoughts that I had there. Um, so then the next phase of this, um, and this is a, a question that comes in from uh, Tyler Hayden, my brother. Um, he has like a question here, kind of a two-part question. And the first part of it, who do you think the Bruins should hire? And then who do you think they will hire? So who should they hire? In my opinion, I think it's a coach who can perhaps better relate to the young players, um, a coach that is going to be able to, as Sweeney said, kind of be able to bridge the gap between the older and the younger players. Um, you know, that speaks to me like they are going to look at someone who potentially has experience in this Bruins organization. So someone like Jay Leach, I think is an obvious name. He was an assistant uh, for the Seattle crack in this past season. Um, he previously coached in Boston in the, um, or coached in Providence, I should say, in the AHL. Um, and, you know, he has a lot of experience with some of these younger guys, some of the guys on the team at the moment. You know, I think that he, in my opinion, probably is the best possible hire that they can make. And I think best coach that can, you know, facilitate this kind of next core of the team when you're talking about Pasternak, you're talking about McAvoy, you know, you're talking about Jeremy Swayman, you're talking about the guys who are kind of going to be the pieces of the future of this team. And I think he can also be a good coach for some of the younger guys, like Lysel, like Lorai, like Brett Harrison, who are probably going to come through Boston in the next few years. You know, Beecher, John Beecher as well, who's the Bruins' first-round pick in 2019. So I think that... He probably is the number one guy that I think the Bruins should hire. Other guys that I think would be good hires. Um, Nate Lehman, who coached with Providence, um, or is currently the head coach of Providence College. You know, I think it would be a big step for him because I think he just signed a contract extension with Providence. So the Bruins would probably have to, you know, really sway him to come into the NHL. But I think the Bruins could have some success with a college coach or a former college coach, you know, someone like David Quinn. Now, I think in that situation, if the Bruins do bring in David Quinn, they might want to bring in someone else. You know, they could do something like something like uh, Ty Anderson mentioned on the Sports Hub Underground podcast that the Bruins could bring in someone like Leach 
and then bring in David Quinn as like an assistant or like an associate head coach. I think I would be comfortable if that was the situation because Quinn obviously has familiarity with the NHL. He was a you know coach in the NHL for the Rangers for a couple of years. Um, he coached Team USA at the Olympics in 2022, um, also coached both Matt Grizzlick and Charlie McAvoy at Boston University. So I think that that could be a route the Bruins go. Um, Spencer Carberry is a name that I had never heard of before. And then I kind of read into him a little bit. Uh, just finished his first season as an assistant to Sheldon Keefe in Toronto. Um, Carberry did serve a year as Jay Leach's assistant in Providence in 2017-18. Um, and he also worked with defenseman in Providence and then in Toronto worked um, as er, worked on the power play as well for Toronto. Um, another guy who I think could be an interesting hire is Mark Savard. Obviously the former Bruin I think got back into the NHL was an assistant on the St. Louis Blues a couple of years ago, not on the not the year that the Blues beat the Bruins in the Stanley Cup. I think it was the year after. Uh, and he is currently coaching the Windsor Spitfires um, of the uh, in the juniors. So I think that's a route that they could go. I think Mark has always said that he would love to, you know, return as a coach of the Bruin, a coach of the Bruins. Um, I think if that's the case, they might also bring in, you know, another assistant like an associate head coach, um, because obviously Mark Savard's never coached, uh, never been the head coach of an NHL team, but. I think, in my opinion, those guys would be the best hires. Uh, Savard, I think, in particular, worked really well with some of the younger guys in St. Louis, Robert Thomas, Jordan Cairo, um, and also worked with their power play. And, you know, obviously this season, they had a really good power play. Savard was with them, I think it was two years ago. Um, so I think he would also be a decent hire. But, unfortunately, I think based on what I said with ownership, that I don't think they're going to allow the Bruins to hire a coach that's going to facilitate kind of a, a rebuild, so to speak. I don't think ownership is going to allow them to do that. I think that's just the sad truth. I think ownership is going to be like, okay, you get rid of this coach, let's fire, let's hire, you know, a coach that has experience and experience coaching competitive teams. And that leads me to believe that in all likelihood, it's going to be Barry Trotz, or Pete DeBoer, who was recently fired um, by the Golden Knights. He had previously coached in San, San Jose. Um, you know, Barry Trotz, obviously we know him, former head coach of the Islanders. He was fired a couple months ago. Um, so I, that's not exactly the route that I would go, but I think that that's the route they're going to go, that they're going to hire kind of an experienced coach um, who's going to come in and, as they believe, hopefully give them a chance to be competitive and challenge for a Stanley Cup. That's just, in my opinion, it's just not doable right now, and that's not what their focus should be. But I don't really think ownership cares or has any type of idea of what's really going on with this franchise. So I don't believe that they're going to be making the right decision with this. Um, I would be kind of surprised if they hire one of the previous guys that I said that they should hire. Um, I just don't think that they're going to do that. So, you know, I know I try to be optimistic here, but 
it's just hard for me to believe that they're going to make the right decision, you know, right after making the wrong decision and firing the coach. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see, but those are some names that, you know, I think could be out there. Um, I've heard John Tortorella's name you brought up, and that is just the worst idea. That is just the worst idea. That is just not what the Bruins need to be doing right now, but I wouldn't put it past ownership to just hire someone based on, you know, what, based on their, you know, what they did in the past. Um, and it's just like, seriously, if they hire Tortorella, that is so bad because it's like, if you, you know, fired Cassidy because he was maybe too hard on some guys, I mean, Tortorella is going to be even worse. So I just, I don't see the Bruins making the right decision here, but who knows? I could be surprised. Um, so I think that'll do it with the Bruins. Obviously, spent a lot of time on that, so that's obviously been um, kind of the big part of the big news in Boston uh, this week. But I think we're going to go over to talking about the Celtics. Um, so before we get into talking about kind of the questions based on the finals so far, um, I've gotten a couple of questions about uh, what the Celtics will do in the offseason. So oddly enough, I actually have two questions that are uh, very similar to each other. Uh, my, my mom submitted a question, um, and she wanted to know, do I think the Celtics will make changes to the roster in the offseason? Um, so I'll answer that one first. Uh, yes, I do believe that they will make some changes, but I don't believe that they're going to be, you know, impact changes, because I think you look at the roster, most of the guys on this team, you know, are signed with guaranteed contracts through next season. You know, Tatum, Brown, Marcus Smart, Rob Williams, Derek White, Daniel Tice, Grant Williams, Aaron Neesmith, Peyton Pritchard. Um, Al Horford, you know, is not a name I mentioned because his contract is not guaranteed, but I think it's generally believed that the Celtics will make it guaranteed and he'll return next season. Um, so I think, you know, looking at some of those guys, I think Tice might be the only guy that maybe they try to move out. Um, you know, I think that at times he can be a nice addition, but I think based on how he's played in this final series, it's hard to, you know, rely on him defensively, especially when he has to guard out in the perimeter. But, you know, I think that he's not a bad piece to keep around because I think with Rob Williams and, you know, unfortunately his kind of proclivity for getting hurt, it kind of does make sense to keep someone like Tice around, you know, just someone that can give you solid minutes. Um, I think that Grant Williams is eligible for um, a rookie scale contract, uh, which is, I think, what the Celtics gave Rob Williams last summer. So I think that he's going to sign something like that. So I think, do I think the Celtics will make moves? Yes, but I think they're going to be very kind of, you know, tertiary moves that I think, you know, they bring in some some old veteran players um, because I think Nick Stauskas, Malik Fitz, their contracts are not guaranteed. So, you know, who knows there? Uh, Juwan Morgan, Sam Hauser, their contracts are on a club option. So the club has the option to sign them or not. So I think, yes, there will be changes, but I think it's going to be kind of end of the bench guys. Um, you know, maybe they bring in older veteran guys. I mean, I can't really see them bringing in you know, a major, like, rotation player. Um, and I think, 
you know, with the Al Horford thing, I think they brought him in with the idea of, you know, his contract's not guaranteed for next season, but I think based on how he's played, I think you would want to have him guaranteed, and you would want to have him back with the Celtics next season, so, you know, I think most of those guys are going to be back, you know, Tice might be the only guy that possibly might be moved, um, but I can't really see anyone else, any, any one of, like, the major rotation players being moved, um, you know, you might see some changes on the end of the bench, um, so I think, um, another similar question we got uh, from Michaela Tracy. She wants to know, um, what, if any, changes do you think that will come in the Celtics lineup in the offseason? So very similar answer here. I think you will see some changes on kind of the bench guys. Um, so, you know, it's possible the Celtics could bring in, like, some old, you know, veteran players. Just throwing out there someone like Paul Millsap or, you know, someone who's, you know, 35, 36, they'll sign on to, you know, try to get a ring. I think that that's what you're going to see for the Celtics um, in the offseason. But I think really the biggest question is, you know, Horford's contract, which I don't even think is a question at this point. Um, but I think you're just going to see changes, I think, just kind of on the, on the on the margins of the Celtics roster. You know, I think that they're always looking for shooters. They're always looking for guys who, you know, can blend well with Jalen and Jason and can knock down shots. So I think if they look to add, that is probably the area that they're going to look to add. You know, me personally, I would like to see them potentially look at a little bit more size. Um, you know, and that's where I said, you know, maybe you move Tice, but I think, you know, he has value, but I think maybe you try to improve a little bit. But, I mean, at this point, like, you have Tice, he's your third-string center, uh, fourth-string, or, like, fourth big, if you want to call it that, um, and he's not really even playing major minutes. So, you know, who knows? The Celtics could move him, but, you know, again, I don't think that they're going to be making any major moves, uh, like, with kind of the, the key rotation players. I think all those guys are going to be back next season. So, you know, seriously, it's an exciting time to be a Celtics fan, not just that they're in the finals, but they're going to have a lot of guys be around for the next few years, which is great, you know, and they can really continue to build um, a culture around this team, which they've done a tremendous job of that um, this season so far. Um, so great questions there. We'll be staying with the Celtics here. Um, my brother Carter wants to know who may be this, who may the Celtics be targeting in this year's draft um, and then what to make of the Celtics pick in last year's draft, uh, Juan Bagarin, I believe is how you say his name. Um, so the first question, who might the Celtics be targeting? So, you know, obviously we know the Celtics traded their uh, first round pick in the Derek White trade at the deadline. So the Celtics are without a first round pick, um, but they do have a second round pick, 53rd overall um, in the second round. So, you know, I think... Uh, Taking a look at that, it might be less of a who and more of a what, you know, that the Celtics might be looking for a specific type of skill set, you know, versus a specific player. You know, I think that, as I said, it might be interesting to see them look into some bigs, you know, so maybe looking at some, you know, forward or, forward or center prospects, you know, someone like Kofi Coburn from Illinois, although I'm not really sure where he might be picked, but I think 
you know, they could go looking at someone like that. They could go looking at someone like Isaiah Mobley out of USC, uh, Brady Manick from North Carolina. Um, I actually think he would be a good fit. You know, he was a big player for UNC in uh, the tournament this past year. You know, he's a big guy who can make shots, has a pretty good offensive game. You know, kind of reminds me a little bit of Kelly Olynyk. Um, but I think he would be a good fit. You know, I think if the Celtics want size, but also size that can shoot, um, I think he would be a decent pick as well. But, you know, who knows? You know, as I said, the Celtics are a team that they're not really a team that has, like, huge needs that, like, you look at this roster and you're like, oh, my God, they really need to upgrade here. And obviously, you know, they're in the finals. A team in the finals typically is not a team that you're going to see in the offseason being like, okay, we really have to go and address this. Um, you know, I think with this Celtics team, it's not necessarily personnel issues that they have. I don't want to say issues, but I think, you know, it's less of a personnel thing that the Celtics are looking to add for. Um, so I think, you know, it would be interesting to see if the Celtics draft um, one of those guys that I mentioned, you know, or they go somewhere else. They look at you know, a guard or a wing player, um, you know, someone from overseas. It'd be interesting to see, but I think no matter who they pick, it'll be, you know, likely someone that will play in the summer league, so you'll get an opportunity uh, to see that player. Uh, also, speaking of summer league, we can take a look at Juwan uh, Bagarin, the Celtics pick in last year's draft. He was a second-round pick um, and kind of a draft-and-stash guy who... Uh, currently is playing in Paris at the moment in the one of the uh, French leagues. Um, so uh, looking at an article that was written by Keith Smith back in March was kind of an update on Bagarin and Yam Madar, who is the Celtics' second-round pick in 2020. Um, so, you know, based on the things that I read about Bagarin, He's a guy that has really good, you know, physical skills. He's a good athlete. You know, as Keith says, he's a 100% NBA-level athlete. You know, I think that one of the, the issues, one of the rubs on him is he's not a great shooter. You know, it appears like, as, as Keith writes here in this article, that he looks like he's lost some confidence in taking threes. Um, you know, a guy who shoots a little under 30%. Um, he's going to need to kind of work on that too. Um, but he says, you know, defensively, physical tools are all there. He's quick, he's got good length, strong, and he's tough. So I think, you know, that kind of tells you that he could be a decent NBA defender. Um, and he did say that um, it will be good to see Bagarin in the summer league, you know, get some work, understanding of the NBA game, as he says. Um, but he does say that he probably needs at least another year, if not a couple, uh, before he'll be ready, uh, for the NBA. So I think, you know, and then obviously from there, maybe you see him get, you know, a two-way contract. I don't believe that the young players or the draft rights expire at any point. You know, they might, you know, meaning that like, okay, if the Celtics don't sign Bagarin, at a certain point, then he becomes a free agent. I don't think it works like that. I think the Celtics just maintain his draft rights and, you know, they are the Celtics' rights until they, you know, trade him or do whatever. But 
And I think he'll be somewhat interesting to watch um, in Summer League, you know, and whoever the Celtics do pick in this year's draft. Um, so now we got a couple of questions uh, based on the finals so far. Um, a couple of questions from my good friend Nick Peronick, a friend of the pod. He's been on the pod before. Um, talking Bruins, typically. Um, but Nick has a couple questions based on uh, the finals so far. So his first question, uh, Tatum seems to be the clear MVP of the finals through three games, but who has been the unsung hero of the Celtics through the same three games? So that's a great question. Um, I would tend to agree with Nick that, you know, Tatum kind of seems to be the guy who is probably the front runner for MVP, although he's not shooting a great percentage from the field. Um, but, you know, averaging 22 points, eight assists, and just under six rebounds um, a game. So I, I would agree that I think Jason is probably someone who's the front runner. although I think J Jalen Brown has put together a pretty good series as well. Um, and obviously, you know, Steph Curry's played really well, but it'll be interesting to see with his injury how well he moves um, in game four tonight at the Garden. So I think, honestly, if we want to take a look at you know, an unsung hero, you know, it's, it's hard because I think it's hard to mention, you know, any of the starters because it's like, you know, obvious the way that they're playing. But I think, um, I think it's, it's interesting because I think you could go a bunch of different routes. You know, Al Horford obviously was really good in games one and three, wasn't exactly great in game two. Um, but I honestly, you know, I'll go out of the box here. Um, I think it's Derek White. You know, I think that he has put together a really good kind of tail end of the playoffs. If you consider kind of the end of the Miami series and into this series, um, he just seems to be doing everything the Celtics ask. You know, can put some points up there, can uh, be a good ball distributor, is a really good defender. I think he's played great defense in, in this series. And I think just reinforces the Celtics on a defensive level that here's another guy who, you know, is big, you know, has good size, has good athleticism, um, and really can guard anyone. You know, he's done a good job guarding Steph Curry in this series. Um, and I think, you know, the three-point shot is falling. You know, he's hitting 46% in the series, obviously, from the field. He's shooting... 39%, so you would like to see that go go up a little bit, but you look at, he's averaging a block a game, just under a steal, you know, a couple of assists, probably would like to see those assist numbers be a little bit higher, but I think he has been a very big underrated reason um, as to why the Celtics are ahead in the series at this point. Um, you know, Marcus Smart, I probably would say too, although I think he, like Horford, didn't have a great game too, but you know, seemed to rebound late in game three as the Celtics kind of took back uh, control of the game. But I will say that really anytime the Celtics can get Marcus to score the basketball, they're going to do well. And I think that obviously you don't want Marcus to be a guy who's, you know, jacking up threes and shooting six or seven threes a game. But I think when you get him playing kind of an aggressive offensive mindset and you want and he kind of has that mentality to score, I think the Celtics are really dangerous. You know, he's a guy who's a really good post-up guy and I think can take advantage of Steph Curry defensively, especially when he's in foul trouble, which is what we saw 
um, in game three. So I think, you know, the Celtics just are so dangerous when, you know, Marcus kind of has the nose to score um, and has kind of the aggressiveness to be like, okay, I have a mismatch on me. I'm going to take this guy to the post. So, you know, Marcus has been really solid in this series as well. So great question, Nick. Um, and then his second question is uh, not Celtics-based, but it is finals-based. Um, so he wants to know, uh, for someone who preaches mental toughness and for someone with multiple rings, why do you think Draymond allows his ego to get in the way on the court and in the media on basketball's biggest stage? So I kind of alluded to this uh, earlier in the week on uh, like the regular podcast, but um, Draymond's a guy who has to play on the edge. You know, I liken him very similar to a Brad Marchand that I think like for him to be a for him to be the best version of himself, he needs to be playing on that edge and playing on that edge between, you know, doing something really stupid that gets you ejected, um, but, you know, not being passive. And so I think, you know, he has to play on that line. Um, and I think, you know, it can be a positive most of the time, but it can be a negative. You know, that over-aggressiveness can get him into trouble as it kind of did in game three as he fouled out. So I think... I don't know if it's necessarily like an ego thing. I just think it's just he's such a high-strung guy. He's such a competitive guy that he needs to play at that level. He needs to be able to kind of toe that line between, you know, I don't want to say bending rules, but that's kind of what it is, what it appears to be. Um, but I think he just he needs to play on that edge. And I think, you know, with a guy who's as high-strung as he is, you know, I think, uh, obviously, he's a guy that's going to be very opinionated and kind of make his feelings pretty clear. And look, that's the way that he, you know, chooses to carry himself. But I think, you know, the, you're kind of seeing that, you know, I don't know, I kind of want to be careful when I say this, but I think, like, it's, he's someone where I think it's just, it's just, you know, his nature and just his nature to be, you know, kind of uh, a bulldog, so to speak, that he's going to be, you know, very competitive, very high strung. And, you know, it can be a blessing and a curse, you know, as the Bruins have kind of learned through the years with Brad Marchand. But I think, you know, it's just who he is. And that's just how he plays and he plays hard. Some people, you know, may find that annoying and frustrating, but I think it's really the only way that he can play um, and play effectively um, on the court. So another great question, two great questions uh, from Nick. So we have two questions left. Um, one question that is a specific question, um, and then one that's kind of one that I had to think about. Um, so this next question comes from um, another friend of the pod, Ben Baptiste, um, who's been on a couple times. Uh, we've talked about free agency and the draft. Um, and so Ben's question, it's kind of a, a couple of questions within a question. Um, so Ben wants to know, um, I've been seeing a lot of news surrounding Max offseason improvement in his physical skill and performance in minicamp mini so far. How do you feel he performs with the new pieces surrounding him at wide receiver? Will he, take, will he improve drastically or take a step back with all the questions with the Patriots offensive coaching staff 
and you know McDaniel's leaving at a critical point in his career. So, you know, Ben knows as well as anyone that I kind of have made my feelings known on the coaching that I don't really think it's a huge deal. Um, you know, obviously losing someone like Josh McDaniels is, you know, tough, but I think that Mac understands he has enough of kind of an understanding that this is a business and, you know, you kind of have to be adaptable um, at any point in your career. You know, I think that we can't act like, you know, Max, this young kid that, you know, anything is going to shake his confidence because I think we've seen that he's a guy that can be, has the ability to be a leader and, you know, it has those leadership qualities and has those abilities to, you know, not, not get too high or too low, you know, that I think he already kind of understands what is required at the NFL level, that things are going to change, but I think you can't change, you know, or if you do change, you change for the better, that I think he has, he's a strong enough mental makeup that I think the coaching, you know, situation or whatever you want to call it is probably not going to affect him as much as we think. And look, he's going to continue, is going to have his struggles you know, no young quarterback is perfect. You know, no one goes through their first couple of years without any mistakes. He'll have mistakes, but I think we have to not fall into this trap this season of being like, okay, if he struggles, oh, it's the coaches. You know, I think if he plays poorly, he plays poorly, but I think we have to have confidence in his ability that he will be okay, and I think that he will, um, but obviously we don't know. You know, it's hard, but I think... Um, I'm not as worried about that as maybe other people are, but it's a great question, uh, Ben, and I really appreciate you asking that. Um, the second part of his question um, is, or actually I answered part of the second question, so um, I think the first part of that second question was, will he improve drastically or take a step back? Now, I think that you're going to see improvement Maybe you don't see drastic improvement. Maybe you don't see like, oh, you know, he becomes an MVP candidate overnight. But um, I think you're going to see improvements. You know, maybe you don't see crazy improvements in terms of his numbers. But I think he's already established that he's, a, he's an accurate quarterback. You know, he has shown improvement in his deep ball um, in, in minicamp and training camp, which is great. You know, you've heard some things about him throwing deep balls to... Trey Nixon, the Patriots' seventh-round pick um, in 2020. So that, you know, makes you feel like, okay, maybe he's improving a little bit. But I think, you know, that question was based on with the coaching staff, but I think he'll improve. I don't know if you're going to see, like, crazy numbers, but you never know. I mean, I think we've seen plenty of young NFL quarterbacks that take, like, massive leaps you know, in, in the early parts of their career, and we're kind of seeing that more often. So, you know, who knows? Mac could make a huge jump like that, but I think we want to be careful and kind of temper our expectations and not get like, oh my God, this guy's going to be, you know, winning MVP in two years. But I think you will see some improvements. I think you probably will see improvements in the decision-making. You know, you might see some improvements where he's getting more of an opportunity to throw deep balls and things like that. You know, I'm curious to see with kind of a newer type of offensive system how he performs. You know, are the Patriots going to be going to let 
him kind of be in control a little bit more? Are they going to allow him to, you know, throw the ball all, all over the yard? Because I think McDaniels, as much as he was important for Max development, you know, ran the offense a little bit differently. So I'm going to be curious to see if, you know, anything changes um, in, in that respect. Uh, the first part of Penn's question um, was, how do you think Mac performs with the new pieces at wide receiver? Um, and I think, you know, as I said, he seems to have improved in a bunch of different areas uh, in the offseason. Um, and obviously coming into this season with a couple of new faces, um, you know, Tyquan Thornton, the second-round pick of the Patriots in this past year's draft, um, and then the addition of Devontae Parker. You know, I think that, I think that really he can only, he can only improve with someone like Devontae Parker, and obviously, you know, he's a guy that I think you want to, you would like for him to stay healthy, and obviously that's the idea when they made the trade. But I think I am not going to be surprised if he makes kind of an early he makes some early noise in the beginning of the season, and you know puts it together something to watch for um, in the early part of the season. You know how he works with some of the new pieces, some of the new guys. I mean, obviously. It might take some time, but I think that based on what you've seen in camp and how excited certain guys are, um, you know, you might see the Patriots get off to a good offensive start, which I think would definitely, you know, quell people's concerns about, you know, the, the new coaches. So um, that is definitely something I'm excited to watch for. Uh, Max Improvement definitely has me I'm excited. So uh, we are going to return to our last question. Um, Michaela Tracy had another question for me, a really good question here. Um, and so she wants to know um, if you could interview any two Boston coaches from any sport, past or present, who would it be and why? Now, I uh, thought about this question quite a bit. Um, you know, I think when I was thinking about this question and thinking about, you know, what two coaches would be, I think the coaches of... I was trying to think of coaches of teams that, you know, championship teams that um, I've been lucky enough to, to watch closely and, you know, really kind of be involved in. And so that's kind of what I thought of when I was thinking of this question is what, you know, coaches won championships that, you know, were really kind of huge for me, you know, as a sports fan. And so I think, you know, the first, the first answer, you know, is pretty obvious. Um, you know, it would probably probably be Bill Belichick. And I think, um, you know, if I was to interview him, I would like to probably focus on, you know, the 2014 or the 2016 uh, season. You know, 2014 was um, a really huge year for me because, you know, I went off to college that year and I felt like I really kind of identified with that Patriots team. And, you know, it kind of seemed to be kind of a perfect storm type of team that the Patriots had a bunch of guys, you know, at the peak of their abilities, you know, brought in some guys defensively like Darrell Rivas that, you know, made the team really dangerous. But then, you know, you go into a Super Bowl game against Seattle that, in my opinion, is the greatest football game ever played, that greatest NFL game um, ever played. 
Um, and so I think, you know, I'd want to focus on that particular season. It was, you know, definitely a challenging season because there were a lot of things that, you know, came up that weren't exactly, you know, there was the, the deflate gate and all that stuff that came up. So, you know, I think Belichick would probably be the number one person that I'd want to interview and, you know, and obviously interviewing him, you kind of never know because I think he's a guy that doesn't necessarily reveal a lot, especially when he talks to, you know, the media and press conferences. But I think, you know, if I got an opportunity to sit down and talk with Coach Belichick, I think that that would uh, be really, really fun. So my second uh, coach, you know, and thinking back to, you know, championship teams that are really special to me, obviously the 2011 uh, Bruins championship team is um, a special team for me. So I think talking to Claude Julian, I think would definitely be uh, something that would be on the top of my list. You know, obviously, it's kind of ironic that we're talking about coaches and interviewing people. I think that Bruce Cassidy would be a great, you know, soundbite to talk to him. But I think talking to talking to Claude and talking about that, you know, championship run in 2011 that was really special. You know, I think that, you know, I'd be curious to ask him about how he felt about his job security going into Game 7 against Montreal because I think that, there were a good amount of people that thought he may have been fired if they lose that game. So, um, yeah, I think just asking him about that game and that run um, and just how special that team was because it has a special place um, in my heart as a sports fan. So, yeah, I think that those would be my answers for that question. Um, so I think that'll probably, that'll probably do it for uh, Mailbag this week. Uh, thanks for everyone who sent in questions, a couple of you that sent in a couple of questions um, and some long questions too. Really appreciated that. So um, that being said, thanks again to everyone and we'll be back with you guys on Monday for a new edition of Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. So um, as always, you can follow our social pages on Twitter and on Facebook for the latest updates on episodes um, and news, you know, specifically when we're talking about our uh, Guest Friday appearances. Um, and then you can listen to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. All right, everyone, have a good weekend, and go Celtics.